This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen is the leading global provider of sample to insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software and knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing, and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled QPCR Tips. Workflow, Applications, and Troubleshooting, and is being presented by Dr. Karen O'Hanlon-Court, a research scientist from Recovery APS Copenhagen, an antifungal drug development company. After completing an honors bachelor degree in biological sciences, Karen received her PhD in fungal genetics from Maynooth University in Ireland in 2011. During her PhD, she investigated how certain gene products influence biology and virulence in the human pathogen fungi Aspergillus fumigatus. She then relocated to Denmark, where she held back-to-back postdoc positions, first looking into plant-fungal relationships, more specifically symbiotic relationships which could be exploited for biological control crop diseases, and later studying how the We1 protein is involved in protecting human cells from DNA damage. She has since returned to her scientific roots, where she now works in drug discovery, trying to develop new therapies for invasive fungal diseases. Alongside working full-time and being a mother to a busy two-year-old, Karen enjoys writing articles for Bite Size Bio and has a genuine interest in scientific communication. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Karen at the end. So now, over to you, Karen, for the presentation. Thank you very much, Amanda, for the lovely introduction and the presentation of my background. Thank you to Bitesize Bio for the invitation to hold this webinar, and thank you very much to Kaijin for sponsoring the webinar. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to attend the webinar. So I will give you an overview today on real-time PCR, and it is quite a broad topic. So to break it down and make it a little more digestible, I would like to just tell you what we will cover. So I will start off with an introduction to real-time PCR. I will talk about amplification curves, and I will explain what is meant by the CT value which is key to um, quantifying real-time PCR data. We will then look at the many advantages and applications of real-time PCR. We will touch upon the choice of different fluorescent labeling systems which are available to you. We will then look at the quantification methods which are available and how they are used to uh, carry out the data analysis. And we will also look at something called melting curves. 
I will take you through the sample preparation and setup of a typical uh, real-time PCR experiment and this will include things like looking at primer design, how you go about setting up the actual PCR reaction and laying out your, your plate. And then towards the end of the talk, I will give you some practical tips that I have built up along the way, as well as uh, some troubleshooting tips for the main uh, trouble areas that can arise. And I will finish you off with hopefully some useful resources. So to start off with, what is real-time PCR? Well, as the name suggests, it's a molecular biology technique based on PCR. It's performed in a specialized instrument, which is typically carried out in 96 well format. Excuse me, I had to move something. Uh, DNA amplification is monitored during the PCR reaction, i.e. in real time and not at the end of the PCR reaction, as is the case with conventional uh, PCR. And since real-time PCR can be used quantitatively, it's often referred to as quantitative or qPCR. And in fact, uh, when you get into the details, you will realize that there are very many abbreviations uh, within real-time PCR, and there are also very many different descriptions for the types of real-time PCR experiments which you can find. And I have found this very useful resource, which I would recommend looking at for anyone who is interested in, in the publication of real-time PCR data. It's called the Minimum Information for the Publication of Quantitative Real-Time PCR Experiments. And this uh, resource provides some really useful guidelines on all the abbreviations that you are likely to meet along the way. And this really helps to uh, standardize the way people carry out and report qPCR experiments, making it easy for all of us who use them. So just a quick look at a real-time PCR setup in brief. So a real-time PCR experiment is not all that different from a conventional PCR experiment. You start off with your sample, which is either your RNA or your DNA, which you want to amplify from. You, you uh, generate a PCR master mix, which will contain pretty much the same components as a standard PCR reaction, your primers, your polymerase, your PCR buffer, and so on. The major difference between the setup of a PCR master mix for conventional PCR versus real-time PCR is the fact that a real-time PCR has a fluorescent label, and this is really the essence of the real-time PCR reaction. This fluorescent label is added to the PCR mix prior to the reaction starting. A light source, which is present in the real-time PCR instrument, excites this fluorescence within the labeling system, and as amplification of your target proceeds, a camera is able to capture this fluorescent signal after every cycle, i.e. in real time. And a graph will be plotted along the way by the software, which will give you the cycle number versus the fluorescence. And on the right here, I have a typical, ex a typical setup for a gene expression analysis experiment, but I would like to leave that until later, where I can talk about uh, the setup of a real-time experiment in more detail. The typical output of a real-time PCR experiment is a real-time PCR amplification curve. And as I mentioned previously, a real-time PCR experiment is carried out in a 96 well plate. So if you have all wells in use on the plate, you will actually get 96 curves. So you get a curve for every single reaction. For simplicity, I will just show you one and I will just take you through the type of phases that you can expect to see as a real-time PCR reaction progresses. So on the x-axis, we have the cycle number. Now, a typical real-time PCR reaction is carried out over 40 cycles. On the y-axis, we have the fluorescence units, which are increasing. And then I have a threshold in here. Now, the threshold you can consider to be the background uh, threshold level. So at this point, you would expect to see some background fluorescence 
even in the absence of a true amplicon. And this threshold is something which can actually be set automatically on your on your instrument via your software, or you can manually control it yourself. Underneath the threshold, we have what I call a baseline or a negative control. So if you have a control with no template, you should not expect to see any fluorescence. So this should always appear below the threshold. And then we have the real-time PCR curve itself. And as you can see, it's an exponential type of a curve where we start out in the initiation phase. So PCR reaction has started. All the components are in abundance, but the number of amplicons which are present do not emit enough fluorescence for it to reach above the threshold level. So we don't really do, we don't do any detection in the initiation phase. At some point, the number of PCR amplicons present increases exponentially. And at that point, we are said to be in the exponential phase. And when this happens, the amount of fluorescence that is detected by the uh, instrument will rise above the threshold level. And at the cycle number where this happens, we say we have the cycle threshold. And I will come back to cycle threshold in more detail in the next slide. So during the exponential phase, all PCR components are present in abundance. And in an ideal situation, the number of amplicons is increasing by two at each cycle. So in other words, you have a true doubling effect, or you are said to have a PCR efficiency of two. Then we hit the linear phase, and some of the components within the PCR reactions may start to become depleted. And of course, this will, this will happen differentially in different samples, and this can be got to do with many factors, one factor being how much template was available for amplification in each sample. So in the linear phase, the PCR reactions are not necessarily being carried out at the same rate. And this is even more pronounced in the plateau phase, when many of the PCR components will start to become depleted and eventually the reaction will stop. And it is for this reason that the exponential phase is the most crucial phase in a real-time PCR experiment. So I promised I would tell you more about cycle threshold values, and I will. So real-time PCR is focusing on the exponential phase because it provides us with the most precise and accurate data for quantification. Two values are typically calculated. So the threshold line may be calculated in the software, or as I said previously, you can set it yourself. Uh, in addition to this, the PCR cycle at which the sample reaches this level is called the cycle threshold, or CT. And as such, individual PCR reactions become characterized by the CT. And as a rule of thumb, a sample which has a low CT probably has a quite abundant template, where a sample that has a high CT, so the CT occurs very early, excuse me, where the CT occurs very late, probably means that the template is quite scarce. And the CT value is sometimes referred to, referred to as a crossing point or as a quantification cycle CQ. So these terms are often used interchangeably. Now, why is the exponential phase so important? Um, I hope this, this uh, figure will, will actually show you why. So this is a very crude figure showing the typical output for 96 identical replicates carried out all at once. So here we have 96 amplification curves where the starting material in every single well was identical. So you would think then that the results should be identical for all. And if we look at the CT point, or if we look at where these uh, samples generate enough fluorescence where it, it, it hits the threshold line, then you can see that there's actually quite good consistency between the replicates. 
And that is because at the exponential phase, all PCR components are highly abundant. However, as we move throughout the, the PCR reaction and as the cycle number increases, moving over towards the right of the diagram, you can see that the amount of PCR amplicon present at the end of the reaction is quite different. And that is because that the amount of PCR present at the end is very sensitive to the tiniest variations in PCR components. And in a way, you could, you could imagine that the end of a PCR, of this PCR experiment, might represent a conventional PCR experiment where you have, you start off with templates of different concentrations, but yet you get bands that have the same intensity in a DNA gel. And that is reflecting the fact that after you leave the exponential phase, PCR amplification is occurring at different rates. But this you cannot see in an agarose gel. But that is why we look at the exponential phase. So as I have alluded to a few times now, there are several advantages of real-time PCR over conventional PCR. And one of the major advantages is the high sensitivity, and this sensitivity is brought about by the fact that we use very sensitive fluorescent labels. This allows us to detect very low copy targets with greater confidence than we could expect from a conventional PCR. We can detect a very wide dynamic range, so if conditions are right, we can actually detect a single copy in a run all the way up to 10 to the 11 copies. It's a highly quantitative and accurate, techni accurate technique when it's carried out correctly. We can calculate the absolute copy number in our sample, or we can detect the gene expression fold changes uh, between different samples accurately in real time in contrast to traditional PCR output. And this is because the increase in fluorescence which is captured during the PCR run is directly proportional to the amount of template. And in addition, the closed tube format of a real-time PCR experiment actually further boosts the quantitative and accurate nature because we, re we reduce the risk of cross-contamination that we get when we open our conventional PCR tubes to add in our loading dye and then load our gel. We risk having carryover between samples. This we do not get with real-time PCR. And that is because we don't need to run any agarose gels at the end because all of the quantification is actually done for us in the software. So it's faster and it's also safer because we don't need to use ethidium bromide to stain our DNA gels. And we don't need to use the radioactivity that we might have used several years ago to investigate gene expression analysis by northern blotting. So there are many, many advantages. These are the main ones. So when there are so many advantages, it's not surprising then that real-time PCR has many, many vast applications. And to make this a little bit more digestible, I have broken the applications down into different disciplines. So if we look within the medicine and diagnostic discipline, then we can see that real-time PCR can be used for the fast identifications of genes that are associated with disease. So this could be genes which have altered regulation levels, uh, altered expression levels in cancer and in other genetic diseases. Moreover, real-time PCR can be used for the rapid and accurate diagnosis of infectious diseases. And this is, this is in particular very, very uh, powerful in cases where the pathogen that is causing the infectious disease is not so easy culturable in the lab or takes a long time to culture. So by using a rapid technique by real-time PCR, the patients actually get the diagnosis and the correct treatment earlier. In addition, uh, within medicine, real-time PCR can be used to identify new microbial isolates and new viral strains, and this is particularly important in situations of disease outbreaks. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. 
To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Within microbiology then, real-time PCR is used in the assessment of food safety and food spoilage. It is used to carry out risk assessments for the safety of drinking water and recreational water in the interest of public health. And it is also used in the identification of new microbial species in conjunction with some of the traditional methods for identifying microbial species. Within research, there are many, many broad uses. And I have to say, this is where I would use real-time PCR the most. And that would be to understand biochemical and signaling pathways and also to decipher mechanisms of actions for both new and existing drugs. And then in addition, a very largely growing area of research is microRNA and non-coding RNA research. And real-time PCR has some very good uses there also. And last but not least, uh, within clinical quantification and genotyping, real-time PCR is a very powerful technique. It is used to assess the viral load or the number of viral uh, entities in certain patient groups, for example, patients who, have, who are suffering from chronic uh, diseases such as hepatitis B. It's also used to monitor the HIV load in HIV-positive patients and, and also to monitor their response to antiviral therapy. And it is also used to help find new uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms which may be involved in disease. So I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, the capturing of this fluorescence is really at the heart of a, of a real-time PCR experiment. And that is very true. And to simplify a, a very, very large area, I have uh, broken up the fluorescent labeling systems into two types. The first type being cyber green and the second type being the fluorescent quencher probes. So if we look at cyber green, you may have heard of it before. Um, it is a dye which binds non-specifically to double-stranded DNA, generating a DNA dye complex which emits green light. And it is this green light that is recorded by the real-time PCR instrument. So as you will see on my homemade diagram here, when cyber green is on the first half of the diagram, I'm showing you the very beginning of a PCR reaction but it could also be a negative control if the primers, uh, as indicated by the arrows, were emitted. When cyber green is in solution and not bound to double-stranded DNA, it emits a very, very low fluorescence. However, on the right-hand side of the diagram, we can see that as amplification proceeds, the primers are extending the, uh, are extending the, the, the template and we get the formation of newly synthesized double-stranded DNA. And then uh, cyber green can bind to this and emit a fluorescence. So it's a very neat and very powerful technique, but it has one major drawback, and that is that because cyber green binds non-specifically to double-stranded DNA, you risk uh, the detection of off-target applicants. But there are some tools that you can use to try and circumvent this, and one such tool is running a post-run melting curve, and this I will come back to later in the talk. The second type of labeling system uh, encompasses the fluorescent quencher probes. So in the first part of the diagram, uh, uh, I'm showing you at the beginning of a PCR reaction where we have our DNA template, single-stranded, forward and reverse primers, and then we have the probe. And the probe is something which is comprised of three parts. The probe itself is actually, um, has a specific re region which is able to identify and complementary base pair to your target sequence. 
and attached on the 5' end we have a fluorophore which is covalently attached, while on the 3' end we have a quencher. And when the probe is intact, so when the fluorophore and the quencher are in close proximity to each other, the quencher prevents the fluorophore from emitting any fluorescence. And then in the second box, we have uh, PCR amplification is underway. So during extension, the polymerase is, bring is being brought closer to the probe. And then in the third box, we see where the polymerase has met the probe and the inherent uh, 5 to 3 prime endonuclease activity of the polymerase actually cleaves the probe. Uh, it needs to cleave the probe to continue extending along the template. And when it cleaves the probe, the fluorophore becomes released. And in that way, it cannot be quenched any longer. And it emits a fluorescent signal, and we can quantify this. And again, the quantification of the fluorescence is proportional to the amount of amplification taking place, which is a representation of how much template we have. So, two systems, both very, very useful, both highly quantitative. The question that many people often have is which labeling system is right for you? So, how I see it is, if you are in a research group or you are working on a project where you are interested in perhaps a large number of genes, and the genes that you are interested in are typically changing quite frequently, then you might want to go for a technique like CyberGreen, where you are not restricted to um, sequence-specific amplification. On the other hand, if you are a group where your sole focus is a handful of genes and you want to be really, really highly quantitative and highly specific with those genes, then you might decide to invest in the fluorescent quencher probes. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a weighing up of the advantages and disadvantages, and it, it often comes down to the cost. So let's now look at the advantages and disadvantages of each. So if we start off with CyberGreen, uh, one of the major advantages, of course, is that it is so flexible because it can amplify any double-stranded DNA sequence. On the flip side, this increases the risk of false positives, and that is because CyberGreen can also bind things like primer dimers, and it can also bind off targets, and it's difficult to discriminate between these things during the PCR reaction. On the other hand, another benefit is that CyberGreen is very cost-effective because you don't need to go through the expensive process of generating a probe, and this may reduce your assay and running costs. But in order to get the best out of something like CyberGreen, you will need to do a lot of optimization on your primers to make sure that they do not amplify anything that is off-target. And this in itself can be time-consuming and cumbersome, and that's where you need to take into consideration, well, time is money too. So it's not straightforward. Um, However, CyberGreen can be straightforward if you're very lucky and if you're working with genes which have very specific uh, sequences for primers, then you can just carry on with CyberGreen without worrying about the challenging probe design. But you will always need to run a melting curve at the end. And then on to fluorescent quencher probes. Well, the reason they were uh, generated in the first place or developed was because of their increased specificity. So it's a single probe, single target scenario. Um, one of the beauties, actually, of fluorescent quencher probes is that it's possible to carry out multiplex reactions. So what I mean by this is, because probes can be labelled with distinguishable dyes, it's actually possible to have two or more probes in the one reaction. And in this way, you can simultaneously detect the expression of many different genes. And one of the attractions of this is that you rule out the, the variation that you might get between uh, different PCR reactions. Um, 
And in ways, it can be time and money saving to have a probe if you are working in a very, uh, in a, on a very focused number of genes and you, you have a well-developed probe, then you will, you will maybe in the long term save time and money because you won't need to run post-run melting curves and spend a lot of time optimizing primers all of the time. But let's not make it too simple because probe design can be challenging and I will not really focus on probe design today, but um, I believe that if you are interested in buying a probe, many of the companies who generate probes will be only too happy to assist you. Um, probes can also be expensive because you need a single probe for a single gene and sometimes they can have the downside in that they can be inflexible and can lead to false negatives and this could happen if you were analyzing a gene which had many different splice variants. Um, it would be a good idea to try and find out beforehand if your probe identified splice variants or not. So when you've made the choice about what fluorescent labeling system you're going to use, then you have to decide, well, what quantification method are you going to use? And there are also two choices here. The first one being absolute quantification, the second being relative quantification. So absolute quantification, uh, as the name might suggest, is concerned with finding out the absolute copy number of a particular sequence in your sample. And using this technique, the unknowns in your sample will be related to a standard curve. And the standard curve is something that you will generate, and you will do this by making a typically a tenfold serial dilution of your template with known concentrations. And since PCR products should double at every cycle under optimal PCR cycling conditions, you should theoretically see a, a 3.2 cycle difference between your dilution steps. And this is what we see if we look in the diagram here on the right. So we see the log starting quantity of DNA on the x-axis and the cycle threshold value, or the CT, on the y-axis. And you can, you can program your PCR instrument to associate particular CT values with known concentrations. So you can tell the instrument what the concentration was in each sample. And in this way, you build a standard curve. And you can get the, the r-squared value, which will tell you how linear the curve is, and you can get the slope and by the slope of the curve, the PCR efficiency can be calculated. And nowadays, these things are done quite automatically for you on, on modern instruments. Um, and of course, then your unknowns can be extrapolated from the standard curve. The units of unknowns uh, are actually defined by the standard itself. And this is something that you will decide upon. So it could be that you are detecting the copy of a transcript uh, per nanogram of total RNA. It could be that you are detecting the copies of a viral uh, gene per human genome, the copies of a viral gene per cell, and so on. So this is, this is very much user-defined. There are some very important considerations with the absolute quantification. It's often just called absquant. And that is the fact that standard curves can be very highly reproducible and can allow you to generate highly specific, sensitive, and accurate data. But your standard curve is only going to be as good as your standard. So it's really, really important to think long and hard about where you will get your standard from and what quality will it be. Will it be genomic DNA, plasmid DNA? Will it be the, an RT-PCR product? Will it be custom-made oligonucleotides, in vitro-described RNA, and others? For example, plasmid DNA is quite often contaminated with RNA, and, and that is going to artificially inflate the concentrations that you will get if you use a nanodrop or, or another type of a nanophotometer to measure. So it's very, very important to, to know a lot about your standard before you go into this. 
again, what is the exact standard concentration. There's no room for error because an error in your standard curve leads to an error in your downstream quantification. How stable is your standard over long-term storage? That is another consideration. Um, as well, absolute quantification assumes an identical amplification efficiency for both the native target, so that is what you want to actually measure as an unknown, and the standard curve uh, in uh, something like an RT reaction. So that is a reverse transcriptase reaction and in the following kinetic PCR. So that was a bit of a mouthful, so I'll try to simplify that. What I am saying is that if you want to use absolute quantification to measure um, an mRNA transcript, then it's, it's really a good idea that you maybe use an mRNA transcript as your standard and not a piece of genomic DNA. Because it is important to know that your standard and your unknown are coming from the same type of uh, processing. So yes, how well does your standard actually reflect the unknown sample? The more so, the better. If the unknown sample is RNA, using an RNA-based standard would be the best choice, but stability may be an issue, so just to know that. And I would recommend that for consistency, uh, it's good to use a standard that you can generate time and time again. So if you've chosen to use a piece of in vitro transcribed RNA, but you know that this protocol is very tricky and it only works maybe one out of every 10 times, then maybe that's not the best starting point for a standard. So find something where you won't have to change your protocol along the way, because that's just introducing another variation into things. We will then move on to relative quantification. This is uh, widely used to quantify the relative change in mRNA expression levels between two or more samples. In some regards, it may be easier than absolute quantification because a standard curve is not strictly necessary. However, a standard curve may be used, and I will get back to this. Um, using this setup, you compare the expression level of a target gene, so that is your gene of interest, with a housekeeper gene. And it's suitable for most applications to examine physiological changes in gene expression levels. The units used to express relative quantities are irrelevant, unlike the units you get from absolute quantification. And in general, the relative quantities can be compared across multiple experiments. There are many different housekeeper genes, and I, I've brought up a few popular ones here, like actin, tubulin, GAPDH, translation elongation factors, and ribosomal RNAs. But it's important to say that when it comes to a housekeeper gene, you really need to find out what housekeeper gene is suitable in your setup, because actin and tubulin, for example, are cytoskeletal proteins. They may not be affected by a drug which affects DNA synthesis, but they may very well be affected if you're looking at a drug which affects the cell wall assembly, because if the cell wall falls apart, that's going to affect the, the whole structure of the cell. So it's important not to just assume that because somebody else has used actin and tubulin as a housekeeper gene that you can use it. And uh, this will require some homework. And for this reason, it's a good idea to use at least two housekeeper genes. It will boost the reliability of your data. Additional considerations with relative quantification. Um, as I said, you can use this method with and without standard curves. It is possible to use standard curves to quantify a full change relative to a calibrator sample. So what I mean here is you could have a sample where you have an idea uh, about the level of expression of a given gene in, in sort of standard growth conditions. This could be your calibrator. Then you could uh, include this in every analysis where you uh, have a standard curve with uh, 
your gene of interest as a as a could be a genomic DNA or it could be uh, from a, an mRNA. Uh, as I talked about, it has to reflect your actual unknown. Um, you could compare the level of gene expression in your calibrator versus your unknown, and you could use this to get an idea on fold changes. But in reality, I have found that standard curves are typically used here to calculate the PCR efficiency of housekeeper and target PCRs, because it's, it's very important to know that your PCR reactions are as optimal as they can be. So in other words, that the number of amplicants is actually doubling with every round of amplification because this will actually boost the, uh, the CT value. It will, it will just overall lift the, uh, the accuracy. There are a large number of different mathematical models available to carry out this type of comparative gene expression, depending on whether you know the exact PCR efficiency or not. And um, it, was, it is really beyond the scope of today's uh, webinar to go through all of these models, but I would say the comparative CT method or the delta-delta-C method, is, uh, it seems to be the most popular method that is used. And it's simply, in simple terms, comparing the CT value of one target gene to another in a sample. And I have left you with a, a link to one of the seminal papers on this topic at the end of the talk for anybody who wants to go into the details. And, and which method should you really use? It very much depends on what question you want to ask. If you, if you want to know the absolute copy number, then I think absolute quantification is definitely the, the method for you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this can be used in food safety, in public safety, and also within medicine to get uh, exact numbers of microorganisms in, for example, food, drinking water, exact number of viral copies in patient samples. This could also be used actually to screen blood donations for the number of, of viral uh, particles. On the other hand, relative quantification is, I would say, the method of choice to detect relative changes in gene expression in a host of different applications. So it could be healthy versus disease tissue, different tissue types, developmentally regulated genes, the response to a drug or another stimuli. The possibilities are, are really endless. So a little bit about the sample prep and the workflow for real-time PCR. Now this is going to differ a little bit depending on what your actual application is, but for the most part, I have tried to streamline it in such a way that it makes sense to everybody. You will start off by extracting a target nucleic acid. It will either be genomic DNA typically or total RNA. And this is going to be your unknown. This is what you want to measure. And, you know, I've said that real-time PCR is a highly quantitative and it's a highly powerful technique, but it's only going to give you high-quality data if you use high-quality material. So it's really imperative to carry out some quality control on your material. And this can be done in a variety of ways. So for DNA and total RNA, you can look at the uh, absorbance at 260 and 280 nanometers, and you can get the ratio of those two absorbances. Um, and that will give you an indication on the purity of the nucleic acid you're using. I also like to run my nucleic acids on an agarose gel. So if I'm looking at genomic DNA, I like to see it as a large chunky band at the top of the gel with not, not too much smearing. You will always get a little smearing, but if you see something that's smeared the whole way through the gel, it's degraded and I wouldn't use it. For RNA, you're looking for the evidence of a large and a small subunit and they should be very very clear on a gel 
with the large subunit approximately twice as intense as the small subunit. And if, if all looks good here, then you can proceed to the next step. And the processing of the sample will be, will be very different from, from one uh, field of research to the other. But generally speaking, processing could involve such things like cleaning up uh, extraction reagents if necessary. So nowadays, there's a kit for everything, it seems. But if you are trying to isolate nucleic acids from a, a biopsy brain tissue, then maybe you have to go to more, uh, I don't know, old-fashioned methods where you might need to use organic solvents. And these organic solvents, they can, be, uh, they can be tricky in downstream reactions, so you might want to get rid of those. Again, you can buy cleanup kits to do that. Um, if you want to analyze gene expression and you have isolated total RNA, then it's a very good idea to carry out a DNA treatment to remove uh, contaminating genomic DNA. And no matter how good the RNA prep kit is, there will always be some genomic DNA left, and you don't want to be amplifying genomic DNA. Um, and then if it's, uh, if it's gene expression you're going after, you will then reverse transcribe this RNA to cDNA using a reverse transcriptase protocol. Then you have the sample in hand, you're ready to go, and then you need to start thinking about assay design and optimization of your assay. So you will need to choose the label, as we talked about earlier, will it be cyber green or will it be a probe? Design your primers, um, choose your quantification method, and optimize your PCR. I've simplified this, but there are, many, there are many steps involved in here, and some of them we will expand on in the coming slides. And then at the end, if everything has been optimized and everything is ready to go, then it's as simple as running the PCR and getting your data. You will run your PCR on the instrument, you will analyze your data, and if you are running with CyberGreen, you will perform this very important post-run melting curve. So, um, primer design for real-time PCR, I don't think is hugely different uh, from primer design for conventional PCR. Um, however, I will give you some of the important criteria in a moment. There are several very good free online resources available to help you, so don't be afraid to use them. I like Primer 3. NCBI also have a very good tool, uh, GenScript and many others. You just have to Google them and you will find hundreds of them. As well, companies which synthesize primers also have very useful online uh, primer design tools to help you. I think a really good tip is to blast the final primer sequence before you order your primers against your organism of interest to get an idea of possible off-target amplifications. And this is particularly important if you're, if you're looking at a gene that makes up part of a large gene family, so a heat shock protein, for example. It's a very good idea to have an, to have an idea of of, of what the likely off-target amplifications are. And then you can just start from scratch if it looks like your primers are gonna amplify many, many things. Another tip, which uh, I think people often forget about is that, you know, just because you're doing a real-time PCR, you shouldn't forget about the old conventional PCR machine. Many of them have very good gradient options. So you can use a gradient PCR to find the optimal annealing temperature. And this will also, this will really, really help you to optimize your PCR reaction. In addition to those tips, I have some criteria for good real-time PCR primers. For efficient and reliable application, your amplicons should be 200 base pairs or less. This reduces the risk of missing amplicons during the amplification. To direct your primers more towards cDNA, try to have your primers spanning an intron. And this is because if your primer spans a region uh, where an intron is contained, 
this region will not exist in cDNA and you won't find it, so you risk a false negative. For maximum stability, aim for a GC content between 50 and 60%. Uh, for annealing specificity, try to end your primer with a C or a G, and in general, try to have a random mix of nucleotides as opposed to long strings of uh, the same nucleotide. And try to have your um, annealing temperatures uh, not too far apart. Most online uh, ordering pro portals for primers will, will give you predictions on secondary structure and primer dimers. And this is not always accurate, but it's a good guide. And again, when you receive your primers, it's a good idea to run a PCR and run it on an agarose gel. And you will see straight away if you get primer dimers or not. In fact, I was actually inspired a little bit for this by a previous article on Bite Size Bio. As you can see the link at the bottom, it's, it's very nice for anyone who wants more detail on primer design in real-time PCR. So, moving on to setting up the actual real-time PCR. So, you will need more controls than a traditional PCR. You should ideally include a no reverse transcriptase control when analyzing messenger RNA, and this is uh, in addition to treating your total RNA with DNAs. This is to make sure that you are actually amplifying messenger RNA and not genomic DNA. So you should get no signal when you do not include reverse transcriptase. Accurate pipetting is critical for reliable results. This is very straightforward. To account for human errors and pipetting errors in general, you should run all samples in triplicate. Plan your plate carefully. Don't get panicked. Plan how many 96 well plates you need to run based on the number of genes you want to analyze and the number of conditions you are testing. I like to write it out on a sheet of paper or do it on an Excel sheet. Try to come up with a plate layout that you think you might use again. This will make it easier for you in the future. And try to differentiate the wells of your plate based on things like the absence or presence of DNA, so negative controls, um, if it's a housekeeping gene or if it's a gene of interest, if it's a control condition or it's an experimental condition. It's good to get in the idea of a routine and carefully program your cycling conditions and, and double check those too. Again, another, uh, another feature which I was a little bit inspired from the bite-sized bio articles was the suggested plate layout. There, there's no right way to do a plate, so this is just one way. Um, you could consider splitting your plate into two sites, and you could have a housekeeper uh, gene on one side and a target gene on the other side. And then you could consider further, consider further splitting the plate into, if it's a control situation like a non-treatment situation versus an experimental condition where you maybe have added a drug. Um, however, for all samples run in triplicate for maximum reliability, include negative controls both for housekeepers and targets and make sure to include a no reverse transcriptase control if examining messenger RNA expression for at least your housekeeper. Um, Check in advance whether or not you can actually run the housekeeper and the target gene on the same plate. This is only going to be possible if they have the same cycling conditions. You may need to optimize this with gradient PCR and standard curves to check the PCR efficiency. This is a, a repeat of what you saw earlier. It's just to remind you that this is actually what the real-time PCR output will look like. Only you will have many, many more curves. And in fact, it may look a little bit messier than this, but this will be the general idea. Hopefully you will, you will get amplification curves and hopefully you will get uh, baselines where there is no amplification in your negative controls.
I've mentioned now a few times a melting curve, and uh, I think it's time to actually tell you what that is. Um, they're very, very important in uh, checking for off-target amplification and or the presence of primer dimers when using CyberGreen. And the principle behind the melting curve is that PCR products will be subjected to a temperature gradient rising from about 50 to 95 degrees at the end of a run. And during this period, fluorescence emission will be continuously monitored. The increase in temperature means that all double-stranded DNA becomes denatured. But the pointer, the temperature at which the double-stranded DNA, so-called, melts into single-stranded DNA, will be observed as a drop in fluorescence because as the fluorescence, uh, excuse me, as the dye, the cyber green disassociates from the double-stranded DNA molecule, it will no longer fluoresce. So you get a drop in fluorescence as the DNA melts. And the, melt, the melting of DNA uh, amplicons will differ depending on, on the amplicon. So what you will get is a melt curve, which will be converted into distinct melting peaks by the software. So products of different lengths with different properties will be observed as distinct peaks. So if you have two peaks, then you know you've amplified two things. Um, it's also important to note that sometimes homogeneous products can actually have the same melting temperature. It's not impossible. So it's good to bear that in mind. Melting curves are also used within genotyping, and this is in fact another use of the real-time PCR instrument because alleles that differ by a single nucleotide can sometimes have slightly differing melting temperatures, and this will be visible in the melting peaks. In this way, a homozygote will appear as a single peak, and it can be distinguished from the heterozygote, which will appear as two peaks. And um, I, I've actually hand-drawn uh, what a typical melting curve and melting peak actually looks like. So on the left-hand side, we have a melt curve showing the temperature which is increasing and the fluorescence which is also increasing. And as you can see on the first diagram, we have, we have one curve which drops off a lot earlier than the others. So it's saying that this particular DNA molecule is disassociating at a lower temperature. And it's quite likely because it is a smaller uh, DNA molecule. This melting curve will be translated to a melting peak uh, automatically by the software and it will actually show you different peaks and then it becomes much more easier to see uh, how many peaks you have. And here, um, the first peak is likely to be a primer dimer. And certainly we, we also have two other peaks. So if this was a PCR that was hoping to amplify one amplicand, it, really, it didn't really go too well. Maybe you'd like to see that again. So, of course, when you do the PCR, you can't really get all of the answers just by looking at the raw data when it comes out on the screen, but you can certainly assess your real-time PCR by looking, by looking at it and get a feel for how, how good the quality was. Questions you could be asking yourself is, did you actually get amplification curves? Do your replicates look tight? So do your replicates actually cross the threshold at the same cycle number? Are your negative controls actually blank? If you're looking at messenger RNA expression, are your no reverse transcriptase controls blank? How does your melting curve look and does your data actually make sense? So sometimes you might have a condition where you are analyzing a cell type where you know that a gene is highly expressed. So if a gene is highly expressed, you might expect to see it crossing the threshold at an earlier cycle. So just these kind of things can help you to be the judge of your own data. 
I'm almost finished. Um, there's a plethora of practical tips and many of these tips are things that you will learn by making the mistake. But I will try to give you the tips that I have picked up along the way. And the first one is really give yourself plenty of time. Don't get overwhelmed. It will take time, but time will pay off. Have a clean and tidy workspace. And sometimes it's good to consider working in a sterile cabinet. I have had the experience of running real-time PCR in a lab where uh, we worked with sporulating fungi. And I can tell you that I did not get a nice real-time PCR until I moved into the sterile cabinet. But it's not always necessary. But just bear it in mind, it may be. Use a dedicated set of pipettes and high-quality tips. It can be a good idea to use tips which contain a filter because this can prevent the movement of aerosols up and down the shaft of the pipette, contaminating subsequent reactions. DNAs and RNAs free tips and reagents are a must to protect your precious nucleic acids. Um, after cDNA synthesis, if that is what you are doing, I think it's a good idea to do a test PCR to make sure that there's actually something worth amplifying. Do this just on a conventional PCR machine and run it on an agarose gel with genomic DNA as a control before you waste a lot of time and reagents amplifying poor quality cDNA. Um, if your CT values are too low, so in other words, if you're hitting that threshold very, very fast, consider diluting your cDNA or your DNA. If you do dilute it, make sure to aliquot it to avoid too many freeze thaws. Again, make sure to mix the reagents very well when setting up a PCR and spin your plates briefly in the centrifuge. Aliquot your template and your primers to prevent multiple freeze thaws and consider storing your primers in a buffered solution for long-term storage. When making standards for your standard curve, make first dilutions of your nucleic acids wherever possible because they do stick to plastic and as such you will get a you will get a shift in your standard curve over time. Always perform the melt curve analysis at the end of a qPCR run when you use CyberGreen. If you're in doubt about any of your samples and if you're starting out in qPCR, just take a selection of PCR products and run on an agarose gel because it can sometimes be more obvious what's going on if you're not familiar with, with the real-time output. And if you're in doubt after all of that, just ask somebody else who knows because real-time PCR can be both easy but also incredibly frustrating and uh, it's good to share the knowledge that other people have. Finally, uh, troubleshooting. Not to end on a negative note but there will be troubles along the way and uh, almost all problems can be solved. So I have tried to break these problems up into the symptom, the actual problem and the solution. So and these are by no means in order of uh, frequency at which they occur but one, one symptom you may see is a sigmoidal curve, and that is what this looks like. So on the right-hand side, we have a typical non-linear regression fitted curve. That is what your amplification curves should look like. But sometimes you might see something that looks like a sigmoidal curve, and you can see you're, you're hitting the, the threshold uh, too fast. You have no actual, uh, you have no initiation phase. And that can be caused by several things. It could be the baseline setting in the instrument is too low. It could be that you have high, high noise or background in the experiment. Maybe the mixing was poor. But the solution would be to consult the manual for your instrument, find out about suitable baseline settings, or contact either the manufacturer or senior personnel. I often just accept the automatic baseline on the instrument. I just find it makes it easier. If you have a product in your negative control, you clearly have contamination, either from a reagent or from the air. 
um, just start with fresh aliquots of PCR reagents and start again or consider working in a sterile environment. If your amplification occurs much later than you expected and you're high, your CT values are simply too high, could indicate that your material is of poor quality. Uh, the reverse transcription of RNA into cDNA may have been poor, or the target sequence might just be very, very low abundant, or your primers or probe don't detect all the splice variants that you think they do. And these are actually quite a few problems, and you really need to address them one by one. But one possibility is to add an extra 10 cycles during the run if the instrument allows. If you happen to see during the run that hmm, there's no curves arriving here, then you can choose to add an extra 10 cycles. If you have no PCR products at all, this is not good. Um, it means your, your material could be degraded or your reagents are out of date, or it could be simply that you forgot to add in something or you enter the cycling conditions wrongly. So it's worth having a look at the cycling conditions again, then repeat the PCR, making sure you don't leave out anything. Failing all of that, re-examine your starting material. If you're testing messenger RNA, include a genomic DNA control to see if your primers actually work. If you have a very low slope in your standard curve, it could indicate poor PCR efficiency. In other words, doubling is not happening as you expect. If this is the case, you need to optimize the PCR again, taking fresh primer aliquots or ordering new primers, checking PCR reagents, running a gradient PCR. Many different things you can do. And lastly, if your replicates do not appear tight, so if there is a large difference in CT between replicates, it suggests that the pipetting accuracy was very poor. And this is usually an easy fix, calibrating pipettes and being very careful. And it could also be that you're working in very, very low volumes. And sometimes people work in low volumes to save reagents. And if you consistently get problems with replicates, then it's worthwhile considering increasing the reaction volume. And that was more or less it. And um, now I will finish off by just pointing out a couple of useful resources on some of the things we talked about today. You could uh, look at these for more detail on probes and more detail on the quantification methods. And then something which I would like to have mentioned is digital PCR, but it was, it was beyond the scope for today. But you can check out this article on Bite Size Bio for, for more information on that. And then I will leave you with just a thought, and that is to plan, 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 because chance favours the prepared mind, and things will work out in the end. So that was it from me. Thank you very much, and um, I hope you all made it to the end, and I think I will leave it over to Amanda for some questions. Thanks, Karen. That was an excellent presentation. And we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So the first question that we have is, um, and this one is a little unusual, so I think we might, um, you may not know, but might know of some resources they can look for. Um, do you know of any reliable homemade qPCR master mixes? Whoa, um, I don't actually, to be honest. Um, homemade master mixes. Yeah, because I haven't heard of any, and I worked quite a bit with that. No, so this this also involves like homemade uh, cybergreen, or um, not sure. Maybe this is from Anthony, so maybe Anthony can write in and um, help us figure it out. It sounds interesting, 
but I've never heard of it. I'm afraid. <laughs> and then we have a question about um, reaction volume. So do you have a preference as to reaction volume for 10 microliters or 20 microliters total? I tend to always just go with 20 microliters. But, mm -hmm. it, but I mean, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule on this. As, as long as, you know, the things like the replicate look tight together, and if you're running a standard curve in a reaction volume of 10 microliters and you get a nice standard curve, then I don't really see why you cannot run something like 10 microliters. Um, I guess there are many factors that can play into the choice, and quite often it comes down to how much material do you have. Uh, what is the economic situation in the research environment? Uh, sometimes people want to scale down because they can make things stretch simply. Um, you know, I think there, I'm not aware of any hard and fast rule, but I personally like to run 20 microliters. And that is probably because I like to, sometimes at the end of a real-time PCR run, I like to run my products on, a, on an agarose gel. I'm a bit old-fashioned in that way. And I know that with 20 microliters, I have plenty to do that. Um, but I, I hope that gives some insight into... Yes. <laughs> I think it's a very, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little individual. And then... Um... So for set, we have a question about setting annealing temperatures. So if you're analyzing um, multiple genes in addition to the housekeeping gene, um, what do you suggest setting the annealing temperature at? Do you suggest setting it somewhere in the middle of the annealing temperatures for all your primer sets, or do you suggest running different pro or um, different plates for each primer set? I mean, the correct answer is probably to not try to optimize the experiment around what is easier for you, but to optimize it around what is going to be most accurate. Um, and I can certainly see that it's it's nice to be able to run things on the one plate because then you, you don't have to worry about plate to plate variation. Um, what I try to do is I try to, to think about this when I actually uh, order my PCR primers. So I try to order PCR primers where I know that the annealing temperature is, is should be sort of similar uh, and then I work from there rather than kind of receiving a large number of PCR primers with very different annealing temperatures and then trying to find the one size fits all. Um, so, so I think that for me that's how I, I like to do it. I like to, to plan my PCR primers so that they actually have similar annealing temperatures so that I don't run into this uh, dilemma later on but sometimes it's not possible to do that. So then I think you have to look into things like, well, I also like to calculate the, the PCR efficiency by standard curve for every primer pair. So, so one way would be take your primers, find an annealing temperature that is sort of in the middle, as you suggest, and then do standard curve and see how the PCR efficiency looks. And then you can go from okay. there. If they're way off, well, then you're, that's not going to work. Um, yeah. Okay, um, I just want to let everybody know that we have quite a few questions. Um, so we're going to take another couple more and then um, we're going to wrap it up at around 10 or so after the hour. So we have another, we have a question um, from Hanadi and they're asking, do bubbles affect the signal detection of the instruments? Because sometimes the replicates and the replicates in the same plate have different CT values. Yeah, that is actually, that is a good point. Um, 
I don't like bubbles in general. So I, I, it's actually not something I've ever come across in my own qPCR experiments. But I find sometimes that when you spin a plate at the end, after you've prepared your plate and you spin it, you can often get rid of bubbles in that way. Um, okay. Have you come across bubbles, Amanda? Because I actually haven't. It has never been a problem for me. I've had a problem before when I've had to carry my plates from one building to another. So I think the walking kind of jostled them around. But when I've spun them, usually they've popped or done whatever. So I haven't really had an issue too much with them. I mean, it's conceivable, I suppose. It's if you are experiencing a problem with, with replicates not been tight and you know you have bubbles a lot of the time, then it's conceivable that there is a link. Um, so, of course, it would be nice to try to get rid of those bubbles. And for me, spinning the plates actually does the trick. Okay, and then we have a question from, and this one is one that I'm not sure on, but maybe you'd have some ideas. So, um, Marcelina said that they, I've never had this problem, but they achieved PCR ampl amplification of more than 100%. So, do you have ideas of how they might troubleshoot this? Um, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, that's obviously not possible. And when that happens, <laughs> when that happens, it's generally a sign that you've got inhibitors in your PCR reaction. Um, and actually, that, that is a problem. And it can be a problem depending on how your, your uh, nucleic acid is actually extracted. So if you have a very crude sample isolation procedure, a very crude extraction method, such as a phenol, chloroform, or triazole, they can actually uh, persist as inhibitors. Also, certain carbohydrates from uh, maybe plant mm -hmm. material can persist as inhibitors. And if you have any way of cleaning up your nucleic acids a little more, then I, I would suggest doing that. You could also try to dilute your material more in the hope of diluting the actual inhibitors. Um, if you have some feeling as to what the inhibitors might be, you could try to spike those inhibitors into some control wells and see if that actually brings down the amplification oh, in those yeah. wells. Um, and actually something I forgot to say earlier on, it, it kind of leads back to the question about reaction volume. Um, you know, sometimes uh, increasing the volume actually gives a much better PCR efficiency. And that could also be because there are some inhibitors present in the reaction. So if you're struggling with um, with PCR efficiency um, being too high or being too low, then you could consider increasing the reaction volume and see if that helps. Because the idea would be that you would be diluting, uh, sorry, excuse me, diluting your, yes, keeping the same amount of sample, but, but increasing the reaction volume so that you would dilute whatever contaminants are coming across. But definitely when the PCR efficiency is greater than 100%, it's a sure sign that there is inhibitor. Okay, and I have a question that might be, since you study um, fungi, like this might be right up your alley. Um, so this is one from Hanif, and they're looking at, um, looking for a target in the non-coding internal transcribed spacer regions in fungi. And so they're wondering if they can amplify a target directly from the genomic DNA without having um, to make cDNA first. Could you just repeat the start of the question again? So they're looking for a target in the non-coding internal transcribed spacer, so the ITS regions in fungi. Yeah. And so, they're, they... so they're wondering if they can just amplify the target from genomic DNA directly without having to make cDNA. Yes, 
I'm, I'm going to assume that it is used to, for the purposes of identification of species, because I think that is the main reason that this region is used. Uh, and there it would be amplified straight from genomic DNA, to the best of my okay. knowledge. I've used it before to identify fungal species from plant material in one of my postdocs. And there it was just directly from genomic DNA. Okay. Um, yeah, that worked. I mean, I've done qPCR from genomic DNA for um, different reasons. I was looking at um, how much DNA, like um, protected DNA. So I know that it can be done. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's non-coding, then I, I wouldn't expect it to... Yeah, I wouldn't expect it to make cDNA or to make RNA. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I would just go with the genomic DNA. Of course, it depends on the, the application, but I think I would, I would go straight from genomic DNA. And then we have a question that's about um, preparation or actually performing the real-time PCR. So, they're so this person's asking, do you always have to prepare a master mix or can you pipette each um, reagent individually? Of course you can pipette each reagent individually, but I, I, I really, I wouldn't recommend it because uh, every time you do that, you increase the variation. Because um, no matter how good your pipettes are and no matter good how, how good you are, there will always be a very small error every time you pipette an individual reagent. So it's much more accurate to go with a master mix and then take from that. Um, but yes, I cannot really recommend pipetting reagents individually. The only thing I would pipette individually is the actual template. Uh, and that, would, that I would do at the end. So when I have my master mix prepared, then I put it into all wells and then I add my template in. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, it's and not. Then, I mean, if if you have a very specific reason for needing to do it like that, of course you could try it and just see how tight your replicates are, because there's a lot of information in the replicates. If they look good, then you you can do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we have a question which uh, I'm sure that many people run into. Um, so it's Jinja Jinsa, sorry, Jinsha asks, once if we. Okay, so once you've prepared the qPCR mix, master mix, and say for some reason you couldn't do it on the day, machine is booked or something, how long can you store the mix for? I mean, I have often had my plate uh, made up and ready to go and then not been able to do it. And I have put the whole plate into the fridge for a few days. I haven't tested how long it can go, but I have never found a problem with three or four days in the fridge, as long as it's covered in like... Um, Tin foil or aluminium, maybe is what you call it. Oh, yeah, aluminum foil, yeah, to yeah. keep the light out. Yeah, I would do that. I mean, I think if you're, if you're starting out in, a, in, a, in an experiment that you, that you have not really done before, then it's difficult to know if it made a difference or not. But if you're quite comfortable in the genes that you're looking at and the kind of setup, you sh should be able to get a feel for, for, for the effect of doing that. And actually... A really nice a tip that I, I didn't manage to get into the slides was you can actually put a calibrator into every plate. So you could have a sample like it yeah. could could even be genomic DNA at a really low concentration that you could just put in a few wells in every single plate. And that just allows you just to sort of track drift. It could even help you to identify problems with the instrument over time or if the bulb in the instrument was getting tired or whatever. By putting a calibrator in your plate it might also help you figure out how far you can push things like storing your your master mix before use and such. 
That's a good idea. Yeah, um, I myself have done the same thing. I put it in for over the weekend before and then picked it up on Monday. We've all tried it, really, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever you're in the lab, you're always trying to Push it. figure out ways to say yes. <laughs> and then we have a question from um, Gotham, or Gotham, asking about the optimum DNA concentration um, to be used for qPCR experiments for the best results. Um, again, I wouldn't say that there's, there is a rule. If it's genomic DNA, then I guess uh, less is more um, <laughs> because it's a very, very sensitive technique. So I would maybe go for something like 10 nanograms per reaction. Yeah, when I've done a, um, genomic DNA in the past, I've done one nanogram per okay. microliter. So that's about probably about 10 nanograms per reaction total, somewhere between 8 to 10. Yeah, yeah, and go from there. And of course, it will also just depend on, on how efficient your PCR reaction is. But I mean, you should be aiming, if at all possible, you should be aiming for the, the best possible efficiency you can get. Yeah. And, and that could mean going up, actually, in, in DNA, or it could mean going down if you have some inhibitors present, depending on where your 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 target is, is coming from, what your extract is. But for if it was for messenger RNA, then I would say you have to decide by doing a few trial and error experiments what is the right amount to have. That will very much depend on, on how weakly or strongly your gene is expressed. Okay, and then I think we're going to be able to take one more question, and then we'll have to wrap it up for right now. Yeah. Um, and so the last question that we have, or that we're going to be able to take today is, do you know what the acceptable standard deviation of CT values with, within replicates would be? So um, you were saying looking at how tight your replicates are, what is an acceptable variation in there? I think that's a really good question. Um, I would say less, I would say maybe half a cycle. Okay. Um, but I actually think that there may be some guidelines on that in this um, Minimum inhibit. Uh, if I could just go back to my first slide. Oh, let's go for it. There's a really valuable information in, in this minimum information for publication because it's all about, you know, how to publish high quality data. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I bet they would have that kind of information in there as well. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and send out that. I looked up the link before, so I'm going to go ahead and send that out to the entire audience so yeah, they can see it as well. Again, should be able to direct them to that. In fact, it's a good idea to look at that before you plan uh, to go into real-time PCR so that you are actually doing your experiments in such a way that they are publishable. Well, yeah, I think that's a great advice because a little bit of planning can save you a lot of hassle in the long term. Exactly. Well, thank you, Karen, very much for a very illuminating presentation and a really fantastic discussion. And Thank thanks you. also, and thanks also to our con our sponsor, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we've lined up for you in BiteSizeBio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. 
To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.